Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Hi, and thank you for having me as a speaker with your Lenten series. It's a pleasure to be here at Calvary. So I was asked to pick my favorite Bible passage and talk about that. If I had to pick just one verse from the library of Jewish scriptures, I would pick two. I know that's cheating, but the two I have in mind feed into one another and really can't be understood without each other. The first is Genesis 1. In the beginning of God's creating earth and sky, the earth was tohu vavohu. I'll translate that for you in a moment. The second is Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 2. It's entirely in Hebrew. Havel havelim hakol havel. I'm leaving all the Hebrew words untranslated because the two passages are often translated into English in such a way as to tame them and to lose their true meaning. Yet it's my intention that if their meaning is to really be grasped, you have to understand the Hebrew. And I'm going to help you do that. So let's take a look at Genesis 1-2. In the beginning of God's creating earth and sky, the earth was tohu vavohu. Now this is conventionally translated as waste and void and formless. The actual Hebrew is much more dynamic. It means the world was chaotic and wild and incapable of fixed form. It was like a pot of boiling water where the bubbles come up from the bottom and then just burst out in onto the surface and then disappear. The world was in constant upheaval. That's the nature of creation. Now, Unlike other creation stories, where the god or the hero kills chaos, because that's what we're talking about, chaos, kills chaos and creates order, in Genesis, God simply lays a veneer of order over chaos. And the veneer is a veneer of language. God says, let there be light. God says, separate the dry land from the water. God says all these different things, and they happen. But the order that's created is an order purely linguistic. It is almost literally magic, abracadabra, because abracadabra is an Aramaic term that means from speech comes the thing. Now, think about this for a moment. If the world is a thin veneer of story, really, And underneath that story is this roiling chaos. The story can be shattered at any moment. Stories have rules, stories have laws, but only within the story themselves. And to really give yourself over to what Samuel Taylor Coleridge called the willing suspension of disbelief. This is a term he called, he called, a term he coined in 1817. And he said this about uh, the willing suspension of disbelief. He said that if the story has human interest, if it really speaks to us as humans, and if it has enough truth in it, 
then we will willingly suspend our disbelief. Now, in the Genesis 1 story, it certainly has human interest because it culminates in the creation of humanity. But what's the truth it contains? I suggest the truth that Genesis 1 uh, contains is the fact that chaos is always with us, that life is never so ordered as to remove chaos from it. It doesn't take much to see this. I mean, half a million people have died in, in the United States from COVID. Nobody would have thought of that a year and a half ago before we even knew about COVID. That's a breakthrough of chaos. The wildfires in California and the Northwest, the great storms we're having, the freeze that devastated so much of Texas. These are all examples of the breakthrough of chaos. Our story is that this things, these things won't happen. Our story is that these are once in a century disasters. But Chaos is showing us, reality is showing us that they can happen in, you know, year after year. So what do we do with the fact of chaos? Well, we have only basically two choices. You can throw away the story or find another way to understand it. So let me give you an example of, of this from Jewish history. Think of the Holocaust. Despite centuries of hatred, oppression, murderous attacks on the Jews, no Jew could have imagined the murder of six million Jews at the hands of the Nazis and their collaborators. This was a chaotic disruption of a millennia-old story of God's undying love for the Jews. Right? God chose the Jews. He's supposed to take care of the Jews. He's going to bring us all back to Israel. And yet, the Holocaust happens. How do you maintain a willing suspension of disbelief in the face of the death of six million of your people? And if you can't, then what happens to your story? Before I answer that, let me give you another example from the Christian tradition. The crucifixion of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was a Jew and almost all of his followers were Jews. And nowhere in the Jewish story of messianic redemption is there room for a crucified Messiah. Even the notion of the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah was not understood at that time by Jewish people to be referring to the messianic future. It was about the Jews themselves. We were the suffering servants of God, not the Messiah. In the eyes of his contemporaries, Jesus was supposed to defeat the Romans, not be crucified by them. The Jews of Jesus' time, by and large, didn't imagine a resurrection or an ascension into heaven 40 days later or a second coming millennia after. They expected the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, to liberate the Jews from oppression in their own time. Paul suggests, Paul believes that Jesus is coming back in his own time. None of that happens. How do you deal with the story when chaos, the crucifixion, let's say, rips the standard story to shreds? You know, in the, in the earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark, 
you have this sense of existential dread where chaos breaks through. Unlike the other Gospels, the original ending of Mark has nothing about a, tells us nothing about a resurrection or an ascension. The original ending of Mark is the women finding the tomb empty. And then when they hear that Jesus is risen, they run away frightened. And that's how the original gospel ended. In the face of a crumbling narrative, what do you do? Well, I suggest you have two choices. You can abandon the narrative or you can rewrite the narrative. The early Christians chose the latter. They reimagined the idea of the Messiah. And as millions of Christians adopted the new message, the new narrative of a resurrected and returning Christ, they could once again willingly suspend disbelief and maintain their faith in the new religion. The Jews after the Holocaust faced the same choice. Did they abandon belief in an all-powerful and merciful God who yet chose to let them die by the millions at the hands of the Nazis? Or did they rewrite their narrative? In fact, they did both. Some of us, and I would include myself in this camp, rejected belief in this old God and invented new Judaism, some secular, some atheistic, some mystical and meditative, contemplative, that espoused an impersonal God who doesn't choose or save or defend or punish. We rewrote the narrative with a different theology. Still others, like the early Christians who imagined that the death of the Messiah was the price of messianic redemption, rewrote the old narrative so that the murder of six million Jews was the price we Jews had to pay for redemption, meaning the return to a newly constituted state of Israel. What all these examples have in common is that they maintain the human interest element of a good story, and they contain just enough truth to allow for the willing suspension of disbelief. The truth of these examples retains, however, the truth of tohu vavohu. Life is ever on the brink of chaos. Now let me take up the second verse, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Havel Havelim Hakol Havel. Everything is Havel. Now, the question, of course, is what does that mean in English? Usually when we translate Havel into English, you get things like vanity of vanity. Everything is vanity. Meaninglessness upon meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless. But the Hebrew itself doesn't really lend itself to those translations. The better translation of Havel is impermanence, transience. The word comes from the idea of morning dew, where the dew is there at dawn, but by midday it's evaporated. Hakol Havel, everything is transient, everything is impermanent. In this, in this sense, life isn't meaningless, it's simply temporary. Now here's how the two verses, Genesis 1-2 and Ecclesiastes 1-2, complement one another. Living is Havel impermanent, because life is tohu vavohu, wild and chaotic. With this in mind, the question becomes, how do we live with this truth of life's intrinsic chaos and impermanence? And I think there are two ways to do that. You can live fearfully, or you can live freely. Most of us react to tohu vavohu and havel with fear. If tragedy can break in at any, at any moment, if there's nothing permanent to which we can cling for meaning and salvation, then life is indeed meaningless. 
To fend off this conclusion, many of us rush to deny the claims of Genesis 1 and Ecclesiastes and insist that we can escape the wildness of life by taking prayerful refuge in a supernatural God outside of creation who protect us from the calamities of creation. The problem with this, this response is that suffering still happens. I mean, listen to the final words of Jesus on the cross, according to Mark's gospel. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If God forsakes Jesus, why do you think God won't forsake you? Answering this question leads to an ever more complicated theologizing in an attempt to excuse God from doing evil and explain the, how, why the innocent suffer. And that's, again, rewriting the story to maintain the capacity for the believer to willing, willfully and willingly suspend disbelief. The second response to the wild, chaotic, and impermanent nature of life is freedom from abstraction. It allows you to engage with the truth of the moment, what the Chinese call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sufferings of everyday life. The God of the 10,000 joys and sufferings is not this all-powerful supernatural God who rescue, rescues us from chaos, but rather the God of Isaiah, who in chapter 45, verse 7 says, I create light, I create darkness, I create good, I create evil. I, God, do all these things. God isn't good or evil, but God is the source of good and evil. So in that theology, there's no need to rescue God because God is all that there is. The liberation that comes from such an awareness is articulated in the book of Job. Notice how cleverly I'm giving you way more than one uh, passage of the Bible to think about. But in the book of Job, you have this great line in Job chapter 2, verse 10. Remember, Job's life has been ravaged by God. Right? The chaos of his life, his life was totally ordered. Everything was great. And then chaos happens and his business is destroyed and then his children are all killed and then his body is just racked with all kinds of disease and he's in terrible pain emotional and physical and his wife comes in in chapter 2 verse 9 and she sees her husband sitting on the ground scratching his open oozing sword uh, sores with pieces of shards of pottery just trying to get some relief from the burning. And she says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? And then he responds in the next verse, verse 10 of chapter 2. He says, don't be silly. We have to accept the good as well as the bad from God. Listen to that for a second. Isaiah 45, 7 says God is the source of good and evil. Job says, yeah, therefore... You have to accept the good and the bad. You're going to get both. Now we try again to, to escape from this notion. You have the, the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, it's verse 19, where it says, it talks about choosing life, and it says, I place before you um, birthing and dying, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. 
Now, we like to imagine that choosing life is choosing the birthing and forget the dying, and choosing the blessing and forgetting the cursing, but that's really not what the Bible says. The Bible says, choose life. Life is birthing and dying, blessing and cursing, light and darkness, good and evil. It's the, the thin layer of order over the vast tohu vavohu of chaos. It's the clinging to the idea of permanence in a world that is fundamentally havel, impermanent. Choosing to live in this reality of tohu vavohu and havel leads us to King Solomon. Solomon embraced this. He rejected the supernatural God. There's nothing about that God in the book of Ecclesiastes, as in the, in the Hebrew version anyway. So he says Solomon, of course, Solomon didn't really write this, but it's attributed to him. So Solomon celebrates life and he even finds pleasure, but he says, no matter how much enjoyment I, I get from all the pleasures I, as the king, the most wealthy person in the, in the land, can procure, no matter how much pleasure I get from these things, none of them solve my problem with impermanence. None of them last. Nothing lasts. His most famous um, teaching in a, in, a, in a midrash, a folkloric piece uh, about Solomon, says that he used to wear this ring to remind him of the truth of his own teachings. And the ring said, Gamze Yavor, this too shall pass. The good will pass, the bad will pass. Everything is a passing away. And that, he says, should keep you on the middle path, you know, somewhere, somewhere between um, euphoria and depression, knowing that everything is transient, everything is Havel, he says. So how do you live in that world? Now, you can read the book. Um, you can really, you can read, I've written two books about it. You can read my books about it. But what he actually says is the way to live in this madness is to eat simply, to drink moderately, to find work that brings you joy, and to cultivate loving friendship. That's it. And you can extrapolate this personal response to a social response. Everyone should be able to eat decently. Everyone should have clean water. Everyone should have meaningful work. Everyone should be free to love whom they love. Now, while I treasure the book of Ecclesiastes, and like I said, I've written two books about it, I still feel there's something missing. And that something is a sense of purpose. Solomon tells us how to live. Genesis 1-2 tells us how life is, chaotic. Solomon tells us living is impermanent, and this is what you do in a chaotic and impermanent world. You know, eat simply, drink moderately, work joyously, cultivate loving friendships. But why? He doesn't give us a purpose. But another line in Genesis does. In Genesis 12, verse 3, I think we get the ultimate purpose of, of human existence. And that verse says that we are here to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Let me say it again. We're here to be a blessing of all, to all the families of the earth, not just the human families, but all of them, human and otherwise. The ultimate response 
to the truth of Tohu Vavohu and Havel is simply to respond to each fleeting moment with Hineni in Hebrew, with the notion, I am here, I am present. Without foreknowledge of what will happen, because you know chaos can break through at any moment, we dare to engage with what is happening, justly, kindly, humbly, to quote another text, Micah 6, 8. And we do it in service to our mission to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is why we're here. The world is wild. We can't do much about that. Things are impermanent. We can't do anything about that. But even with the reality of chaos and impermanence, we can create a world where each of us is a blessing to the others. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.